welcome to the Chapman CG Podcast, inspiring and informative conversations with top HR leaders from around the world. More and more businesses have found themselves evolving to a matrix structure, but it can be difficult to manage because reporting lines are often blurred and the traditional manager-direct report relationship no longer applies. Uh, I'm Matt Chapman, and today I've got Stella Strasdus from Johnson & Johnson with me. Uh, Stella is the uh, worldwide VP for uh, of HR for global surgery and medical devices and diagnostics at Johnson & Johnson. It's great to have you with us, Stella. Thanks, Matt. Now, I've known Stella for, for quite a number of years. Uh, she's a great friend of Chapman CG, and I think what I've always respected about Stella is her extremely global approach when it comes to managing HR talent. Now, Stella, you've had a fascinating career. Take us through your background um, from early in your career to now. Okay. So how long do we have, Matt? Okay, I won't take that long. Yeah, so we have uh, one minute. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, I would say that, you know, if I look at my career, a lot of folks um, are surprised when I say that I actually started my career in regulatory affairs at Merck and Company. And, you know, in that, it was international, it was global, but I very, very quickly realized that what I was intrigued by was the talent necessary, the capabilities, and globalizing um, business growth. And so with that, I've had the pleasure of having a number of different kinds of HR positions. At Merck, I did global mobility um, and moved into managing business-based HR for the discovery R&D scientists. Similar at Hoffman LaRoche when I was there in farm and at Unilever on the consumer side. I also did take a sabbatical, believe it or not, for about two years and got my master's in social work, where I then decided to look at how I would create and sell and institutionalize employee assistance programs. And that allowed me to work at a nonprofit hospital for a bit um, before I was actually recruited to um, Hoffman LaRoche at the time to set up their EAP and then move back into business-based HR. But more recently, I've been in um, Johnson Johnson for the last 15 years, and I've really had the pleasure of a number of different business-based HR roles in the pharmaceutical business, working with global strategic marketing uh, in Asia-Pacific, in Latin America, and then the last five years with our medical device company. So I'd say that's pretty much on the professional side, Matt. And then on the other side, I've started a nonprofit with an urban center creating a park and I do think many times in human resources, we are about not only building the talent, the capabilities, but also community. So I do see some linkages between what I would call community building and also um, competency, capability, and community building in organizations. And I've got to ask you, uh, you, you mentioned that sabbatical, and people often ask this, uh, taking time out of your career and then coming back in, what's your reflections on that sabbatical? Um, did it hurt your career? Was it worth it? Yeah, I would say for me it was absolutely worth it because I really looked at making a change, and that was I had been working in HR before my sabbatical, primarily focused on, I'd say, global mobility, compensation, highly technical, and yes, global. What taking sabbatical gave me was the opportunity to take a pause, learn some new skills, make some new connections, and also really re-enter via a different avenue back into the corporate environment where I was actually in more of a leadership position where I was leading something that was quite new for the organization and institutionalizing that. So for me, I think it's worth it for pause, reflection, new skills, and also re-energizing your own thinking and pausing so that you bring more value. Yeah, it's definitely a trend we see, particularly amongst 
uh, high potential HR talent that more people are taking time out um, when they're climbing to the top and sometimes when they're nearing the top, uh, you'll expect them to sort of take that next role, but they'll actually take a, a break. And uh, I think my view on it is that you often see people come back into the workforce uh, much more rounded from having had that perspective. I would agree. I would totally agree. So let's talk about Johnson & Johnson. And you know, having worked with Johnson & Johnson on HR searches across the world, the scale of J&J has always been breathtaking to me. So um, I understand it's about 126,000 people, 265 operating companies. And, you know, what staggers me, um, the world's sixth largest consumer health company, um, sixth largest biologics company, the world's fifth largest pharmaceuticals company. Um, it's, a, it's, it's a relevant, very relevant company to talk about today's uh, topic, which is, you know, managing the global matrix. Uh, how do decisions get made in a company as, as, as vast as J&J? Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, um, as I listen to you, Matt, when I first joined J&J 15 years ago, the focus at J&J was a lot of around how we actually have very focused business units, very independent groups that would make their decisions, right? So I'm driving pharmaceuticals in the central nervous system, and I'm going to drive that, and I'm not worried about a matrix. So 15 years ago, I would say there was much more direct line accountability, and J&J has really evolved over the last, I'm going to say, particularly probably five to ten years to appreciate where the value of the matrix comes in. And part of that really was a recognition that when you look at the market and the marketplace and the evolution of the external customers and stakeholders, there's no longer one shareholder, one stakeholder, I should say. And so I think, you know, I started my career in pharmaceuticals. In pharmaceuticals, if you were convincing the physician, you got the physician. And the physician could certainly, based on clinical experience, pull through the demand that you had your sales reps generating. It's no longer been the same for, I'm going to say, the last probably 10 to 12 years. And that's where the, the stakeholders across the globe have evolved to be government, payers, patients, yes, providers, and physicians. And so when you have more multiplicity of stakeholders, you actually need to have more dimensions of your organization able to create your value proposition. So you see matrices happening in two, I'm going to call it vectors. One, where you need to establish groups that are highly strategic to create unique value in the marketplace that brings together what maybe in the past was your decentralized business unit. So in the United States, the marketplace in healthcare, in Europe, and also even in Australia with the Ramsey organization, you've got large decision makers, whether they be purchasers or hospitals, that say, I don't want to deal with the 53 operating companies of Johnson & Johnson. I want someone to deal with me as Johnson & Johnson. So if you're going to internally do that, you need to figure out where I'm going to centralize some components that used to be decentralized. The other side is efficiencies. In the past, I think the go-to-market model, the cost to serve, was not under such, I'll call it, um, duress or maybe perhaps much focus. Now, as you look at pricing, as you look at tendering, as you look at the healthcare market evolving, you also need to pay attention to all the levers around what the cost to serve is. So you do see much more standardization, centralization on the efficiency side as well, human resources, IT finance, 
do I really need to have 53 different ways of doing this because I have 53 different companies? The answer is no. So Johnson & Johnson, what you find is where it matters to be distinct and focused and differentiated, we will do that with customers in the marketplace, primarily probably clinicians. However, even in those business units where we need focus, we also need to leverage and behave as Johnson & Johnson. And so those are the places where the matrix comes to play. Strategic big picture at a J&J level, or I'm going to call it efficiencies, also in some functional levels. And so for many of our business leaders, they have less and less what I'll call direct reports. They have many more indirect reports that are embedded to deliver on their business strategy, but are connected to global units. And I think that's where some of that is something, how do we balance the strategy, the efficiency, with the focus on the business? I don't know, Matt, if that explains it well enough or you'd like some clarification. Uh, it's a very, very thorough analysis. I think that's, uh, that's a great way to put it. So are you saying that the secret to an effective matrix is not necessarily uniformity, but flexibility and tailorization to the uh, business situations and perhaps markets? Or do you advocate, uh, at the end of the day, uniformity because you can't cater to all of these different situations? Yeah, Matt, it's a great point. I would say that internally, we should be able as an organization to look for uniformity and standardization, right? IT system, right? We see that in HR, right? Performance management system. Those things, I call them processes that or systems that support uniformity. And those are critical, and any organization can control those. And when I say that, uniformity doesn't mean, and this is for me the fascinating part for HR, uniformity of process, of platforms, of systems. You know, we talk about having five conversations towards performance reviews. Those are critical, I'm going to call them enablers. Where we bring the value as HR is in the conversation itself. We don't need to reinvent the performance management form or reinvent a process. The process is solid, consistent, and global. But where we do make a difference is in the individual conversations around what matters to drive that market growth and innovation. And so I think sometimes that's a fine tune that we really need to pay attention to as, as HR. But to your point around um, flexibility, I do think when you're looking at government, you know, the government in China does not assume that J&J is going to come to them with the regulatory processes that are diverse. They'll assume that there's one, and we're committed to the quality of that and the approach to that. However, there may be differences in a consumer product, from a pharmaceutical product, from a capital equipment product, from a biologic, let's say. And so I think that's where you need your agility to come in. Your agility is really relevant to the marketplace and relevant to the business you're in and to the stakeholders. So we always need to make sure that we're able to build that in as well when we establish those, I'll call them centers of excellence, that you know, usually have dual reporting lines. I'm going to report to a center of excellence, but I'm also going to be embedded to drive a business value. So I'm going to ask this question from a, from a talent lens. When you're uh, acquiring talent, and I've, I've certainly seen this when I've um, you know, been doing some searches for the company, uh, often people are coming from more traditional environments where they've got a, yeah. a large span of control in terms of 
direct direct reports. And they're coming into a, a Johnson & Johnson situation with, as you said earlier, uh, a smaller number of direct reports, but a larger number of indirect reports. How have you seen the, um, the, the, the talent uh, coming into the organization change as a result of um, this matrix structure? Yeah, it's a great question, Matt. You know, I, I would say that um, as any HR professional, as we're interviewing talent, when someone starts to ask me about how many direct reports they have, a little red flag goes off in my head, right? Because I wonder, why are they asking me that question? So I normally then begin to ask that person, what's the outcome of what they've been driving in their prior position? If it's about managing a large team, I worry a little bit because for me, it's not about managing the direct reports or control. It's actually about delivering an outcome based on shared purpose. And that is, I think, something as we look at more matrix organizations, the reason companies have moved more towards matrix is because the external environment is one that's less predictable, is changing, and requires that companies come with two things, focus, relevancy, actually three things, but also the ability to really be agile to what that marketplace needs. You know, when, when I worked at, um, I guess it was Roche at the time, I remember I was sitting in a meeting, I was supporting the discovery scientists at the time, and they looked at me and said, and we were dealing a lot with internal organizational changes, and they looked and said, Stella, you know what, the patient who's suffering from HIV or the doctor who's treating AIDS patients actually doesn't care if it's Roche or it's Merck or who's delivering it. What they care about is that there are companies or businesses that are coming together, whether it be functions or even collaborating across company lines to solve a healthcare problem. And for me, I think that's what J&J, when you look at the global matrix, is let's really look at the purpose What's the issue I'm trying to solve? And then how do I mobilize the right team that may be internal and some may actually be external because I'm looking to solve a problem that matters to patients, to physicians, to stakeholders. And so for me, Matt, when I think about the matrix and I look at the talent, it's got to be talent that's able to align teams on purpose whether or not they report directly to them or not. So as part of your role, and, and, and you really have a, a, a double hat role. You didn't talk too much about this at the start, but I understand you're, you've got a second hat, and it's very popular in HR now to wear multiple hats, uh, looking at Latin America. Yes. How have you found this acceptance of um, this direct-indirect uh, model um, between developed markets or mature talent and you know some of these fast markets where you know people are coming in from companies where they have had that full span of control and direct reports, but um, you know you're bringing them into to Johnson and Johnson. Yeah, you know I think that what I find with some of the folks, particularly more in the emerging market, clarity of the role and who I'm accountable to becomes very important. I also think the further away you are from headquarters the harder a matrix is to appreciate and to feel connected to it, right? So I do think as HR professionals, we need to think about when you globalize a matrix, 
how do we make sure that we're really engaging around the world, the local, the regional, the global, to make sure it's relevant to them and what they're doing to drive that, I'll call it, growth and innovation agenda. And I'm not sure we do a good enough job of that, Matt, as you say that. I think when I look at the global, the higher-level leaders, they can see it because they're pulling those levers a little more directly. Where it becomes a little more of a challenge, and I do see this, for example, as you mentioned, in Latin America, is when I'm there and I'm the commercial leader looking to drive execution, and I need supply chain to deliver, distribution to deliver, I need to make sure my regulatory access is there. And if I feel that's not all working, I'm concerned about the talent I have. And I think as HR, we need to really make sure that in the matrix, that the talent meets not only the functional capabilities where they fit, but these are leaders who can join and be on leadership teams in the region, in a country, where they are also leaders on behalf of that region, on behalf of that business unit. And that's where sometimes I find if we don't have leaders who can bridge across those two is where we actually begin to have, I'll call it, gaps or issues where people feel the matrix isn't working. So in Latin America, I know I'm accountable to ensure that we're leading one Johnson & Johnson enterprise approach to human resources. And I would say before implementing any tactics, I've spent probably the first three months with business leaders really discussing what's the value of one J&J. And it's not only about HR. What we have found, it's about customers. It's about talent. It's about government. And so I think if we can really lead the right conversations that are about value creation relevant to a marketplace, most companies that are undergoing a matrix, it's usually about two things, strategic value of the breadth of, I'll call it, the parent company or the breadth of the broader company, and it's about the efficiencies and leverage of the internal systems. And so how do we run the right dialogue that focus both on growth as well as efficiencies has been critical to us in Latin America. So to conclude our discussion, I've got to ask the question, getting decisions made in matrix structures has often been problematic in some organizations. How do you herd the cat, so to speak, to make a decision and, uh, and, and get things done when there's so many stakeholders involved? Yeah, you know, we used to have a term at J&J that used to say, you know, you need to work the, walk the square to align everybody. I would say, no, no, it's not about walking the square. It is, though, you know, really about making sure that as people in any part of the organization set their goals, there is a goal alignment session. I know it may sound very tactical, but this is where you align on purpose. So to your point, Matt, you know, if you've got supply chain, regulatory, and you'll generally hear this, that folks will say, my goals are not aligned, right? Supply chain wants to make sure that we have no inventory, right? Or we're not carrying much cost. And yet I need in the commercial side to be able to deliver the high growth expectations I have. So for me, one of the things to enable the right decision making down the road is aligning up front on what the priorities are 
for the external customers and then all the parts of that matrix that need to align to deliver to those requests for that year and that you set your goals and that there is a capability to give feedback regardless of direct or indirect on the progress against those goals. Where I have seen it not work, Matt, is where people feel I have a functional goal that's maybe highly efficiency-driven, but it's not flexible enough for my high-growth market or for my new product introduction. So therefore, what I find in the matrix is you really need to make sure you're able to plan. And you know, um, for those of you that may know Johnson & Johnson, a lot of folks will say J&J is a very relationship-based company. And so my question once to somebody was, if we're so relationship-based, why would the matrix not work, right? There's trust. You should be able to make it work. And someone said to me that because you're relationship-based and trust, you tend to go to the people you know versus really begin to look at how you've actually repositioned the organization, the decisions to be made. And it requires more discipline for a matrix to work well. So I would say clear goal setting, shared accountability, purposes, and then there are times where you need to be able to have the right dialogue when you're hitting a dilemma. And those dilemmas might be around inventory, might be around compliance. You need to be able to have open, honest conversations to arrive at those decisions. If you don't do that, decision-making is reactive, and it's about aligning everybody retroactively. And to me, that's an exhausting part of, of a matrix if you don't manage that well up front. And that was Stella Strasdus, Worldwide Head of Global Surgery and Medical Devices and Diagnostics for Johnson & Johnson, talking on how the matrix works and how to use it effectively. For more excellent conversations from Chapman CG, follow our podcast series or check us out at chapmancg.com.